Let me, uh, let me pray and then we'll start. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your law is not burdensome. And by your spirit, you give us the ability to honor you by keeping the commandments by your spirit. You didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And you've asked us to establish it, as it says in Romans. And so as we take a look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Lord, I pray that this study would minister to each and every person present and that our lives would be strengthened, our heart to serve you would increase. And I pray, Lord, that it would just be enlightening to all who are present. And so we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, do you have that video? Yeah? I want to show you a Bill Federer video. Um, and, and before they show this, let me just set it up a little bit for you. Bill Federer is a constitutional historian. He's a pretty amazing guy. Um, and, and people often say America was, is not founded as a Christian nation and heard a number of things like that. And, you know, there's issues with the Barbary pirates and a number of other things. And, you know, I'll, I'll go through those systematically. But the understanding of Western law and how Western culture was established and begins here with Mount Sinai, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The first five are our relationship with God. The second five are relationship with man. And in that, as a matter of fact, in, in all of the founding constitutions of each of the original colonies, um, the Ten Commandments are placed in there. In addition, uh, even when you had like um, Rhode Island, when it was established, um, they, they included five of the Ten Commandments, but later on included others in other writings of their constitutional framework. And so we're one of two nations in our Declaration of Independence or in our founding documents that recognizes a creator, a lawgiver, a lawgiver. Now, you've heard it said that you can't legislate morality. Have you heard that? I can't think of a more stupid statement. Honestly, every law is based on a moral foundation. On Sunday, when I read that letter that the man wrote to me, he invoked a, a term that he's not allowed to use in his worldview. He said, I was evil. He said, I was evil. If you are only a naturalist and you only believe in evolution and you don't believe in a divine creator and you don't believe in a designer and you just believe that we're a cosmic accident by happenstance or by chance, then there is no morality and it's all subjective. And you cannot borrow from my worldview to support your own. If you say something is evil, which is metaphysical, it's an emotion, then by all logic, there has to be an opposite of evil, which is? And by what standard is his position established? By his opinion? So by his opinion, wherever he garners that, wherever he's come up with it, he's laid down a moral law declaring me evil and him right. And that God doesn't exist. And, and my point that I had made, I think on Sunday, was if evolution is true, and if God doesn't exist, and if there is not a moral lawgiver, and if we're not accountable to him, and it is survival of the fittest, and it is evolution, and it's cosmic accident and random chance, and all we're driven by is our DNA, and all we're driven by is survival of the fittest, then in what case... And, and please, I, it's going to be graphic, but I'm using it for illustrative purposes, almost hyperbole. In what case would rape not be wrong? I mean, if, if the idea is to propagate your, your species, why would rape ever be wrong? That's based on a moral condition. Willingness is irrelevant. If it's survival of fittest, destroy an individual. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Hitler's premise. And in a superior race that dominates, what is the purpose of the law and how does it govern man? In the Noahic covenant, where Noah comes off the ark, God then says, if you take another man's life and spill his blood, your blood will be required of you, which is capital punishment. It's the very first establishment of civil government and self-rule. And this was long before the Ten Commandments were given. As a matter of fact, long before Abraham received the Ten Commandments, he was declared righteous because he did what? He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Thank you. 
He believed God was accredited to him as righteousness. And now the law comes forward and it's given on Mount Sinai. And as I said earlier, the first five commandments are a relationship with God. The second five commandments are a relationship with man. And it governs Western culture. And it's an absolute. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 18.21. Exodus 18.21. I don't have the verse pulled up. If you need a Bible, these, these guys will give you one. Or actually just John. He'll give you a Bible if you need it. I'll take one, John. If I can read it. Is this the large print? Oh, I can't read that. Forget it. It's okay. I'm going to have someone else read it. I've learned my limitations. Right, right there. Right there. He needs one. He needs one. Right there. Throwing God's word. What kind of a human being? So when our founders considered this idea of government, and we were studying this earlier with our pastors in training, when our founders considered government, one of the things they did is, um, well, we'll go through this history in a moment, but uh, according to the scriptures, what is the most prominent form of government that you see in the scriptures? Monarchy. Yeah, monarchy. And for the first four centuries in Western Europe, it was a monarchy. There's nowhere you could go that you would avoid a monarchy. And divine right of kings, they wanted you to submit to the king, and they said that God gave that authority, and all positions are appointed by God, Romans 13, right? And so this concept of a monarchy, everyone submitted, especially if you were literate and couldn't study the text. And, and when our founders, and I've studied this with the guys on Friday morning, when our founders came over in 1620 with the Mayflower Compact, one of the things that they brought with them was a book called the Geneva Bible. And, and I've said this, the Geneva Bible is similar to the one you're reading, uh, although the, the King James Version, the New King James Version, came as a response to the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was translated by the Tyndale um, copies, and Tyndale was the one who put the Bible in English language for commoners to read. And in the Geneva Bible, it was the Bible of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, protesting, pulling away from the Catholic Church, longing that the citizenry of the, of the kingdom of God would be literate in scriptures and teaching them to read. They, gave them the, they, they, they held dear to the Geneva Bible. A lot of folks know the answer to this, but why was the Geneva Bible so special to the Puritans, to the pilgrims that came over? Does anyone know why? The commentary in the margins. So you'd have the... You'd have the scripture, and then over here you had a margin, and it, and it dealt with civic society. And they started to look at government from what the scriptures would say. And when they came over to the United States, they were so committed. They would read their Bible three to four hours a day. Every founder, for the most part, would go through the Bible in the course of a year, um, they consumed the scriptures, and they were a very biblically literate culture. And so when they looked at government, they established originally, based out of the book of Acts, where it said that the, all the believers sold their possessions, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they gave to each one as they had need. And that's kind of an idea of what? Socialism, right? So it was a, an early form of socialism. And the pilgrims practiced this in Massachusetts, this early form of socialism. But what happens with socialism? Uh, you know, everybody puts their stuff into a common pot, and if you have a need, you get to take out. That really benefits who? Lazy people. I, I have to do half as much as you, but I get the equal amount. And the illustration, you know, is Denise has got an A in her class. You've got a, an F. We're back again, <laughs> right? So we take two of her grade points and give you two. So he goes to a C, she goes to a C. Great for you, bad for you. Now, the concept that we've used often is this idea of money, and money is a representation. Money is a representation of your contribution to society. And in a sense, you contributed. You worked hard. You poured in. You got that grade. And that's why the Ten Commandments deal with private property. Because when you honor God, you're blessed. He blesses you. When you don't work, you don't eat. Second Thessalonians points that out. First Timothy points that out. You don't do work. You don't eat. And we create a culture where you receive having done nothing. And this was an early form of socialism. They realized it didn't work. And so when they read 2 Thessalonians, when they read 1 Timothy, they realized we have got to make people work. And so they put together work laws. They put together requirements. They established these things. 
And by 1620, this Geneva Bible had established this. And you can read the Mayflower Compact. It was all to the glory of God. And so uh, June 23rd, 1788, we end up getting um, the Constitution ratified. And you say, well, God's not in the Constitution of the United States of America. Yes, it is. Because it ratified by two-thirds vote of all of the other state legislatures, the vet ratification of the U.S. Constitution. And so what you do is states' rights trump that, and you go back to Trump. I didn't mean to <laughs> insult any of you. But you go back to what were their constitutions. And so I want you to watch this video. It's only about three minutes long. Bill Fetter, he's a friend of ours. And uh, this is a cool video. So let's click it and play it if we could. So uh, this, is, this is a historical reference. Um, and then I wanted to take a look. Um, we, have, we have Exodus 18.21. I don't want to pull that one up yet. K- keep the tab on that. Can you do 1 Samuel 8 for me? And I'll read it. 1 Samuel 8, starting with verse 4. So the, the, the primary form of government in the Old Testament is you had King Saul, King David, King Solomon, King Jehoshaphat, King, 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 is that God's original desire. Look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the king displeased Samuel. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they were forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. Now listen to what the king will require of the people. You ready? This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them over his own chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of the grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and will put them to his work. And will take a tenth of your sheep and will be and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in the day because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we have a king. We will have a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So I would say that God was warning them that that's not the type of government you want. And what is a king? He is a sovereign. The divine right of kings, prima nocta, even with your wife on your wedding night, the king had the the opportunity to, to better first. Everything was his. The whole realm was his. That's a king. You don't own your property. The king does. You, he's giving you the privilege to reign. You're, a, you're, a, you're in serfdom. You're a vassal. You're just a, a portion of his kingdom. You do his bidding. And God pointed out in Noahic covenant that we are to have civil government accountable to God. And he actually laid this out in Exodus 18.21. Let me read it to you. God said this to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they, oh, I'm sorry, I have the wrong one. Here it is. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God. So they're able, they have to be capable, capable, able, capable, able, such as fear God. What else? They love truth. And they don't covet. (laughs) 
And then it says you'll appoint them over what? Thousands, hundreds. So this would be federal, state, county, and local government. That's where our founders came up with that concept. They came up with the three branches of government based out of Isaiah 33:22. King, lawgiver, right? Judge. Executive, legislative, and judicial branch. All out of Isaiah 33:22. A number of other passages that our founders came up with. John Locke, two treatises of government over 1500 times in a book that's less than 400 pages. He quotes the scriptures. 37% of all quotations of the founders uh, that they have, of 15,000 quotations, 39% of them were the scriptures themselves. Others came from John Locke's two treatises of government. The Declaration of Independence came wholeheartedly from John Locke's writings. He was a man who loved the Lord. He looked at the law and he ascribed it so that we would have this. Now, the point is this. We're going to be taking a look at the Decalogue. The law is given by God. Now, we're going to read this momentarily, but I wanted to share this with you. This is out of uh, Romans, and this is Romans chapter 3. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not only the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, listen, we establish the law. So how was Abraham made righteous before the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? How was he made righteous? By faith. He believed God was accredited to him as righteousness, that there would be a sacrifice, propitiation. It would pay the penalty of the violated law. It was coming in time, uh, a sinless lamb of God to be slain from the foundation of the world. Abraham saw that point in time. He believed God by faith on something that would happen. We today look back on that point in time and, and we know that, that Christ died on the cross. We know the tomb is empty. And we believe after, after having seen or re- reported uh, of the crucifixion. Abraham was awaiting it. So were all the Old Testament saints. And that belief was accredited to them as righteousness. Christ moved the bullseye to where they were and they were made righteous. Did they succeed in keeping the law even after Moses was given the 10 commandments, the first 10 commandments? Was mankind able to keep the law? Is there anyone in this room who's never stolen a thing? Please raise your hand. We want to marvel at you. Is there anyone in this room who has never told a lie? We'd like to marvel at you. Is there anyone who's never coveted? Praise the Lord. We're all in this together. We are wretched, evil, wicked human beings. And this is right where we should be. So because we're saved by faith, does that mean that we do away with the law? No. Paul clearly points out, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish How do we establish the law and what is the purpose of the law? He goes on to say in in Romans 4, what then shall we say? Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him as righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And Paul goes through this whole picture that Abraham was saved by faith, and yet he doesn't do away with the law. So what is the role of the law for the New Testament believer? Even the Old Testament, God points out that they're not saved by the observation of the law. The law is a schoolmaster, as Paul says, to drive us to Christ. No one would know a stick is crooked unless it was put up next to a straight stick. The law is a standard that we measure ourselves by. Are we in alignment with God? Now, what we do is we remove God from the equation and we bend it to fit our sinful condition. It's not, a, it's not the taking of a baby's life. It's a choice. It's not, it, 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 it's, it's not whatever. It's, it's a lifestyle choice. You know, it's, it's not adultery. It's an affair. It's not, I mean, you, you just, you can go through everything. We bend it to, to meet and, and we make these gods that possess us. Uh, we worship them. We, we, alcohol, instead of submitting to God's man should not be drunk of wine, but of the Holy Spirit, Right? Be not drunk of wine. Instead, we find ourselves 
submitted and, and drunk and we can't stop. So what do we do? The Romans were brilliant. They just called, uh, they just made a, a Bacchus the Roman god of alcohol. And they said, he's got control over us. We might as well give him deity. And then the sexual promiscuity and, and all the licentiousness is you were seeing in the passage there, they just made a goddess, Aphrodite. And, and so you just give it a name and you're, you're under the submission. And then God comes along and says, we have all been created. We're all submitted to a higher being. You'll either be under control of your rebellion from God, or you'll be under control by God. But you will be a slave regardless. You'll either be a slave to your sin or a slave to righteousness. You'll be in one kingdom or the other. And so the founders and the ancients looked at the law and they realized that there is a higher grade for man. There is an attainment, especially if societies are going to get along. We wouldn't do very well if every time you came to church, somebody was ripping you off and going through your purse or your wallet or breaking into your car. People would stop coming. People wouldn't live here if we kept doing that to each other. If you're going to be violated or somebody was going to accost you or we have civil society where we get along and we do our best to work together and we're bound by commonality. But who says that's right and wrong? Are you justified in stealing? Are you justified in lying? And God says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and to, as it says in the passage, establish it. So here is, here's the idea of establishing the law. First of all, what is the law? Law are moral restraints. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Those are moral restraints. And yet the Bible says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Almost seems a contradiction. God says you honor my word, you'll be set free. And yet his word contains constraints. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. And yet you honor his word and you're set free. And we look at it and we want to throw off all restraint. Who is God to tell me what I can and can't do? Love wins. I will marry and, and be with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want. Forget whatever scripture, commandments, love wins. Well, what is love? In a naturalistic society where God doesn't exist, how can you have emotion? What is hate? Where do those come from? Those, those aren't physical characteristics. Those are esoteric. Those, those are metaphysical. You, you can't talk on those terms. You can't steal from, from my worldview to supplement your own. If you're driven by your DNA, there's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as hate. There's no, it's just, you're, you don't, you, you don't even, why would you even know light exists apart from its presence? And so when we look at this and we say, okay, there's a supreme lawgiver, we're either submitted to him or we aren't. And when we are, we have freedom. We have freedom when we obey his constraints. That seems strange, doesn't it? Anyone in here ever struggle with an addiction? Raise your hand. Me too. And you know what the addiction was? I couldn't say no. I didn't have the ability to say no. Christ came into my life and I had the freedom not to do it. How did I have that freedom? I applied restraint. Where did I get that restraint? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. When you're being tempted, God will give you a way out. He gives me the strength to step away by restraint and say no. How does that give me freedom? This is the interesting thing. The ancients looked at the law, as we're going to see momentarily. The ancients looked at the law, and this is what is over the, the building at Harvard Law School when it describes the law, wise restraints that make men free. Can we get some air conditioning? Everybody seems like you're falling asleep. Wise restraints that make men free. You've heard this before. Wise restraints that make men free. How can you be restrained and be free? How can you be restrained and be free? How can you be restrained and be free? The ancients understood it. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, as it went on into John Locke and the two treatises of government and the idea of the law. His law is not burdensome. 
what his law does when we keep it by his spirit. He gives us the ability to keep it by his spirit through faith. And we have this accountability and this relationship with him. We've been forgiven. We forgive one another. We have the vertical relationship through the first five commandments, the horizontal relationship with the second five commandments. It creates a society where we function together because we're accountable to God. We treat one another. We love one another as Christ has loved us. And we see this idea, the wise restraints that make men free. Here's, here's where it boils down to. There it is, Tom Brady. Tom Brady, epic comeback in the Super Bowl. Amazing guy. We studied this, right? Epic guy. Why was he so good at what he did? He pursued and obtained an excellence in football that nobody in this room in your entire life will ever achieve. You see, the ancients looked at the law as the ability to pursue, ready? To pursue, here we go, to pursue excellence. You apply restraints in order to pursue excellence. So Tom Brady pursues excellence in football while he applies restraint instead of sitting, like I've said, sitting in front of the idiot box or on the couch eating potato chips, watching the Super Bowl. He's on the field working out, lifting, passing continually. So he has the freedom to to enjoy football at a higher level than we would ever have that freedom. So when you apply restraint, you have freedom. What comes natural to every human being? Sin. I don't even have to practice. I'm so good at it. Seriously, I have like a PhD in sin. I, I know everything there is to know about sin. I can, I can accomplish it and go deep into it momentarily. Anyone else that gifted? Yeah? Praise the Lord. Good room. All right. That comes naturally. That's debased. That is that is our sin nature. That you know we we reduce to our least common denominator. We're we're devolving instead of evolving. If we're left to our sin nature, and, and I told this to my my lesbian sister, she said, you know, um, how can you say that 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 my attraction to the same sex is a problem? And I said the same way you can say that my attraction to, you know, women other than my wife would be okay. Would you approve of that? And she's, well, it, it depends. I mean, you know, and she's going through her subjective morality. But my point was, then where's the law? Where's, where's the line? I mean, nobody likes a police officer when they're speeding, but they're grateful that there isn't chaos on the roads. And I said, I am held to the same standard you are. God catches his fish before he cleans them. He'll put his, the desire for his law in your heart. And that's the vertical side of the commandments. But he first has to, you have to realize you shall, and this is where we begin. The scriptures point out very clearly, God says, and God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. You worship nothing but me. And in worshiping me, you'll have freedom. If you worship alcohol, you become like that which you worship. You worship money, you become cold and lifeless. You worship exercise, you just become leathery and weird. I mean, there's something attractive about soft and cushy. I'm just kidding. But really, if you put too much effort into one area, even if you worship the law, you become cold and heartless. You become like that which you worship. And God says, you will have, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And we all can realize that we were in slavery, we were in bondage, and he delivered us. That's why the Passover, everything ties in. What he's saying to the Jews is the same thing he's saying to us. We've all been, we've passed from, from slavery into freedom, from bondage into life. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself carved images, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He lays out, this is the relationship we're going to have. You're either going to worship another God that's going to destroy you, or you're going to worship me. And if you worship me, you will have no other gods. I, I'm jealous. 
I created you and I bought you. It's like the story of the little boy that built the boat. He worked and he tirelessly built the boat and he takes it out on the lake. He lets it go. The wind catches it, starts to go out. He's trying to retrieve it. He can't. He finally gives up his effort because you know, the sun's going down and it's dark and he has to get home. And sadly, he leaves his boat. He's walking downtown. He sees in the secondhand store his boat. And he says, hey, that's my boat. He says, well, it may have been your boat, but somebody brought it in and I bought it. Now you can buy it back. But it's going to cost you 20 bucks and you can work outside the store and you can sweep. And he, so he works for a few days and sweeps and does it. Finally buys the boat back. And when he grabs it, he says, not only did I build you, but I bought you. And that's the Lord. Not only did he create you, but now he bought you with his blood. And the same blood that was the Passover, that the angel of death passed over the houses, it's the same blood of Christ that cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Now, what is our response? To establish the law. Christians aren't just saved unto obscurity. We're saved unto the establishment of the law in culture. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's why you find men that are able, that fear God, and love the truth, and don't covet. And we covered this today in our our pastoral uh, training. I'm limited on time, but I'll cover it. I've done it before. Third-party purchase, real simple. Third-party purchase, the the first-party purchase is Denise is going to buy a watch for herself with her own money, right? So you're going to look for all the bells and whistles for the best price. It's your money, right? Stay with me. You're falling asleep. I know it's Wednesday. (laughs) You're getting very tired. So she's going to buy a watch. She's going to look for all the bells and whistles for the best price, okay? Now, a second party purchase is she's going to buy a watch for herself with my money. So now money's irrelevant. So she's going to get features that she wouldn't have gotten with her own money, and she's going to get overnight shipping because cost is irrelevant, right? And she's, she's going to get all kinds of things she wouldn't have gotten with her own money because she's spending mine. And then here's the worst one. It's a third-party purchase. She's going to buy a watch for somebody else with somebody else's money. And she has to do procurement. She has to do 100 of these a day. And she's so sick and tired of it. And anywhere where she can get a kickback from the manufacturer that she's going to get to line her pocket, she'll give the person who's receiving it. She doesn't even know who they are. She's going to buy sub sub-valued product and and do it at a high price just to get a kickback in there. And this is, by definition, every purchase that the government makes is a third-party purchase. Because you're buying something for somebody else's somebody else's money. And so that's why you get corruption, right? Cost overrides, right? So why is this so important for somebody who would lead thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens? Because when you have your hand on the purse strings like Judas and you covet, you now have the ability to really score. And so we have to look for men and women who are able, who know how to do the job, who fear God. Why? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is character? Character is what you do when no one else is looking. And where does that come from? It comes from your accountability to God. Why was Joseph elevated because in the absence of, of Potiphar, he did right. I am entrusted to this, and I, ca- I can't dishonor God. Character is what you do when no one's looking. And character comes from your relationship with God. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. And so that's why it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. Because when you learn to submit to earthly parents, you'll have no problem submitting to your heavenly father. And he gives you these commandments, so you fear him. And what do you seek? You seek truth. Both revealed truth and the truth that's in the word and also nature's law and nature's God. So there's natural law that's designed by God that you can see, and then there's revealed truth, which is his word. And all of that comes together as you minister in this civic world by the law. And what is the law? God commands that the law be established. And this is the establishment of it. Noahic covenant. This is why we have the Ten Commandments. It is to govern society. But it must begin with a recognition, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. When the righteous reign, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people grumble. Sin is a reproach to any nation. This is why it's so important that we apply these truths into our common development of government. 
And yet we never see the crossover. We think we're saved by grace and we can do away with the law. And the law is just something that we observe as we go through. No, we fight to establish the law so that people can live under the banner of truth. If the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. And a nation that removes the Ten Commandments from its edifices doesn't teach children they've been created the image of God, even though our founding documents declare that, that they, they don't have inalienable rights or only rights that are given by the state, that you must be inoculated, that you must, that you must, that you must, and you have no longer any rights. Where does that come from? Is that God? Was that established by Christians establishing the law? It's the absence of Christians participating in the process. This is our responsibility to establish culture. And here's what's interesting. Uh, In 1650, the very first public school act, which was the old Satan deluder act. And and it it was to take away illiteracy and to teach the kids the scriptures. And the book that they use is New England Primer. And at the back of the book, there's 178 questions in the New England Primer that here is the first grade question. You had to answer this question or you couldn't graduate from the first grade. Ready? What are, the, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? First, first great question. What offices does Christ execute? How does Christ execute the office of prophet? How does he execute the prophet of, uh, office of king? How does he execute the office of priest? First great question. Here's fifth great question, which is the fifth commandment. What is required? What is forbidden in the fifth commandment? I have a couple other ones. Uh, you guys are already cooked. You can't handle it. They were a very biblically literate culture, and all their kids understood that. All of our founders were educated in their New England primer. For, for two centuries in the United States, that was the number one textbook up until the 1930s. Now we don't talk about God, and our culture reflects it. Because we have no absolute truths, everything is flexible. And, and what is sexuality? What is, what, is a, what is marriage? Who's setting the definitions? Where, where do we get all these ideas? Are we establishing the law by legislating? No, no, there's very few folks up there legislating according to the scriptures. Why? We don't do it. We just don't participate in the process. Somehow our gospel is irrelevant in the civic culture. Yet God commands in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You've been saved and delivered, and you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. He says, you shall not make for yourself carved images, likenesses of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting iniquity upon the father's children. I mean, this is, this is generational how it'll affect us. When prayer was taken out of schools in 1956, or was it 54? Maybe it was 52. You look at all the social pathologies. Drug addiction went up. Abortion went up. Teen suicides went up. SAT scores went down. And we're in this social experiment. And yet God says to us that we're to establish this law we establish the law. We don't, we don't void the law through faith. We establish it. How do we establish the law through faith? By the application of it in our daily lives. What is our God? What you spend your time, your treasures, and your talents on is what you serve. Are we... Affecting the culture is a culture affecting us. Are we instrumental in the transformation of a culture? Are we being transformed by the culture? Do we have other gods? Small g. And really, why don't we exercise this? And the the story, and I loved it, that was shared earlier with this idea. um, It was, who was it? Uh, Dinesh D'Souza said it. You have a massive lion and you have a skinny circus trainer with a top hat and a stick. And he's waving his stick and the lion is bowing down and opening its mouth so he can put his head in it. 
He's making the lion do ridiculous things and jump through fire, which is contrary to his nature, and all by waving the silly stick. And who's stronger, the lion or the lion tamer? The lion. And the, the lion tamer has convinced the lion he's not stronger. And thus in the church today, less than 24% of you bother to vote. You don't establish righteousness. You don't even participate in the process. And the person with the stick tells our kids what they're going to learn in school and what shots they're going to receive, what foods they're going to eat, and what drinks they can have and where they can live and what taxes they're going to pay and what is moral and what isn't moral and we're just dancing because we don't care. We don't want to establish the law. If the Lord is God, choose ye this day whom you will serve. How long, as the scripture says, do you fluctuate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve ye him. How do you serve him? You engage the culture. You make a difference. What does the Christian church today serve in general? If you were to turn on the TV and you were a foreigner and you knew nothing about Christianity and you turned on Christian radio or you turned on Christian TV, what would you think if you were a foreigner the church is about? Money. And you know why? Because it is. The richest real estate owned by Christians in the United States of America is in Houston, Texas. $4.5 billion in real estate. Four of the 10 largest churches in America located right there in Houston. The mega churches alone constitute one of the largest voting percentages in the city. And they are sitting on amazing wealth. And that city, Houston, was requiring all pastors to submit any sermon that spoke out against homosexuality by the mayor who was a lesbian because she won with less than 8% of the vote. You know who got her out of office? Black Christian Democrats. The church is all about the dollar. And yet, the Bible says if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better to have your millstone tied around your neck, cast in the deepest ocean. And I think about what we tolerate as they're waving their stick that our children are to study. Contrary to everything the scriptures say, and they're just waving the stick. And we just go with it. We must compete for ideas because these are good ideas. You know, tolerance and freedom that people are enjoying in this country, even though they reject us, they love the, the byproduct of this type of government. And, and as much as people will despise or struggle, it is, it is the most healthy thing we can do for the culture. And in no way, shape, and form, because you cannot force anyone to be a faith. I can't force you to be a Christian. This is a personal relationship with the living God. The establishment of his laws bring freedom because we have this ability to excel. People learn more, they do better. What represents less than 3% of the U.S. population, or excuse me, what represents less than 3% of the world's population is responsible for the greatest achievements in the history of the world and more copyrights and symphonies and uh, more anything has been produced by the United States of America because we've had more freedom. And then the last thing is this, because we're limited on time, and then I'll answer questions. Just to give you a contrast of freedom, you have that peninsula, um, and, and we're, we, we have the parallel right here. Is it 38th parallel in Korea? So this is North Korea. 
And this is South Korea. Same language, same climate. As a matter of fact, when the 38th parallel was established, North Korea got 80% of the arable land. South Korea got 20%. Most of theirs is mountains. And they got 20% farmland. They got 80% of the farmland. They Same everything. This South Korea had the 147th largest GDP on the face of the earth prior to the Korean War. North Korea didn't exist. Now today, South Korea got 20% of the farmable land. North Korea got 80%. They got a constitutional republic, which brought freedom. And they had a massive, massive revival. Most of the, many, I should say, of the missionaries today come out of South Korea. Churches are inundated in South Korea. And today, they don't have the 147th largest GDP. They have the 11th largest GDP. They're flourishing. And these people eat grass. And 2.5 million of them are dead or starving. They got God and freedom. They got godlessness and communism. Establishing the truth. So to think that government isn't the hand of the Lord, this is the idea of the Ten Commandments. We're going to go through these. We're going to look at each one of them and how they affect society. We're going to go step by step through them. Because it's, it's high time that Christians realize Yeah, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Amen? And we're not bound by the law. Amen? There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So what's the purpose of the law? We're to establish it on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not dominionism. But what is the idea of the law? Wise restraints that make men free. We're going to worship somewhere. If we apply his truths, I've got news for you. Whether you believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus, your culture will flourish if you simply apply the Decalogue and honor that. Uh, my, my, My Mormon friends and, you know, I, I call them brothers and sisters of faith. Our Christology is different. Who their Jesus is and who my Jesus is is very different. And when they look at the law, their observation of the law in a sense is they've got three heavens. They have the celestial, the terrestrial, and the telestial. They have no hell to speak of. And I'm going to end up in one of these three according to their theology. I've got a heaven and a hell in my theology. You don't know Jesus. You're separated from God for all eternity. It's that simple. Every man is without excuse. We have to reconcile to him. The penalty has to be paid. We violated the lawgiver's law of the universe. It has to be, the penalty has to be paid. It's waiting for us to receive it by faith. So they're over here and they believe in atonement. They believe in Jesus Christ, but it's not the Christology of, of orthodoxy. And so they observe the doctrine of covenants, the pearl of great price, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, And the commandments that they hold to, they commit to tithing. Every Mormon commits to tithing 10% of their income. So I've talked to two bank executives at two different branches. I was doing business with them. I said, without revealing names, can you tell me who the richest people in this area of all of your depositors is? He goes, easily, without exception. Who? Mormons. Because they apply the truths of, of the tithe and they flourish. They don't spend more than they have. They apply all the truths of, of financial teaching. They, they, they practice all of these legal things. And if observance of the law would save you, Mormons would be saved. They got me beat. 
I have grace, salvation by grace through faith, a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. And by joy and response to what God has given me, I can obey these not out of obligation, but out of adoration. They apply them because they have to in order to be saved to get to one of these heavens. I should do it because I'm grateful. And it establishes righteousness in the community. But we get to a place where we got our get out of hell free card. And it's like, forget all the rest of the commandments. And so we're all in debt. We're all upside down. We all don't tithe. We all are struggling. We don't make ends meet. It, we're, you see how it works? And we worship our indulgences and we say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm saved by grace through faith. And, you know, God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I can see how close I can get to the edge and just dabble in sin. And, and I'm saved by grace through faith. And what, what struggles? Third, fourth generation. It's the children. It's our culture. It's our society. Christianity is, is self-indulgence for us only. And we don't think about the long-term effect. And when the Bible says that we are to pray for the peace of the city, for in its peace we'll have peace, when we realize we have a responsibility to the community, then I would ask simply, what does Thousand Oaks or the Conejo Valley look like for your grandchildren by the effort you're putting in to establish righteousness a place where they'll have viable employment, a place to live. They can raise their children without the stick. They can worship God freely. What does that look like? What's the application of that? What's our responsibility towards that? Right? With a baby in your arms. What does that look like? And that's why we establish that righteousness. Not a theocracy, not demanding it, but contending in the world of ideas for what works best. Would it be fair to say, as we go through the Decalogue, would it be fair to say it's not good to steal? Yes? Amen. Or to covet? Or to commit adultery? And yet, it happens. We're saved by grace through faith. Do we continue in sin that said grace may abound? No, by no means. But who says? Whose law? Is it subjective? Whoever's in power gets to write the laws or do we recognize God that we are created? Not only did he make us, but that he bought us and we're accountable to him and accountable to each other. The simple application of these truths would transform culture. And for any one of your college professors who says communism, socialism works, <laughs> look at history. How many Billions have died. I can tell you right now, you don't want someone taking your A so that the person with an F can have a C. That doesn't work. You don't work. You don't eat. You've been created in the image of God. There are welfare aspects established by Scripture. They're easily applied. Our founders did it. There's all kinds of insights that we apply and watch as cultures affected. But the very first one that we begin with, and this is what we close with tonight, is that you worship the Lord your God. He's the one we worship. He alone is worthy of our worship. When we have that right, we have freedom. When we don't have that right, we don't have freedom. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Those truths set us free. To the contrary, reject Christ, reject the Bible. And I ask you, on what authority do you stand? And where do your rules come from? And where'd you get them? And who says you're right? And if there is no God, who's to say I can't kill you? Who's to say murder's wrong? Who's to say lying's wrong? Who's to say stealing's wrong? Says who? The one with the gun is the one with the power. Just, just ask the guy in North Korea. Do you, do you realize what those people are going through? He's got the guns. He said he's God. They don't have a choice or they're dead. And we have freedom. Where does that freedom come from? From the moral lawgiver. You understand the first commandment, you're on your way to a really blessed life, especially if we take a look at the other nine. And that'll do it for the night. Four minutes, any questions? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Seven of you liked it. Good. No, eight. All right. <laughs>
Yes, Agnes. Yeah, yeah, what you sow, you reap. Yeah, here, here's the idea. Whether I'm Mormon or Orthodox Christian, I'm bound by gravity. This is the law. And, and there's the law of giving, there's a law of love, there's a law of reciprocity, there's a law of reaping and sowing. It all applies regardless of whether you have your Christology correct. If you're operating, listen, if you're going to build a building or you're going to jump off a cliff or you're going to operate a plane, you want to know the laws. Revealed law, right? Natural law. You need to look at those things and a mathematical law. And here's the other one. If you are an evolutionist and you remove God, you can't even use the word law. You can't even use the word science. You can't use any absolutes because it's chaos. It's happenstance. You can't comprehend out of the natural world metaphysical concepts. You can't steal from one culture to defend your own. It doesn't add up. So, yeah. So that would apply to marriage too. Like, so if you're a non-believer and you're loving your wife, you're still going to get the benefit. I'll give you a perfect example. There's a guy named uh, Harry Garabian. His wife was Zabel. Zabel agreed to marry Harry. She said, I'm a believer. The one commitment I want from you is that you will tithe your, your, your income and that you will attend church with me at least two times a year, Christmas and Easter at a minimum. He said, you're on. And he said, I wrote that tithe check. I didn't believe in God. I didn't give a flip about God. I wrote that tithe check because I wanted to marry Zabel. And I did, and she'd come to me, and I'd be irritated, but I'd write it. And every time I'd write that check, we'd get blessed, and I'd write another, I'd get blessed again. And he, this man ended up making a fortune. They never had any children. And I had the privilege to lead Harry to the Lord in the last days of his life with Parkinson's. He said, you know, she knew it. She had it right all along. And this was a testimony through the course of my life that everything she touched was blessed. And, and I remember after Harry died and, and she had donated the money for the, for the Harry and Zabel Garabian Family Life Center and she'd given a million dollar endowment to operate it. We went down to the mayor of Thousand Oaks, Jim Patterson, for Harry and Zabel Garabian Day. They gave a plaque. I took the picture with them. And we're driving downtown Fresno and she pulls the car over in this Lexus and she's got a gold Rolex and her hands are shaking with age and she pulls the car over and it's a one-way street, no parking. Cars are honking. I'm like nervous. And, and she is irrelevant. She puts on the, the emergency flashers and cars are honking and she could care less. She goes, Rob, you see the house there and we're in the old district of Fresno, the dilapidated, and it was the old Armenian district. And there's this old Victorian and it's leaning it's so antiquated and it's leaning. And she said, Rob, that's the house I grew up in. And that front window, that front window, I remember my papa, he would have all the children gather and he'd lay out the envelopes, the rent and then food. And then he'd go through the whole thing. But the very first envelope was always the tithe envelope. And he would have us all sit and they would count his paycheck and they'd lay out all the money. And he'd say, okay, what's the 10% kids? And they'd all calculate. And he'd go, that's right. And he'd take it and he'd put it in there. He says, and that's for the Lord. And Rob, she said, every envelope got filled. She said, I learned that in that window and what happened up there in the mayor's office happened in that window over 70 years ago. Another guy, um, Harry, uh, uh, Harold Mancellian, never left Fresno but twice. He went to Las Vegas for army training and went back for a, a re, uh, reunion. Never fought in World War II. He went to train, but he was last leg, and they sent him back to Fresno. Never left Fresno. He managed farmer's lumber. And you go into his office. It was dilapidated. It was the old Union Oil Building or Sun Oil Building, and he had all these pictures on the wall of all these kids, and each one was $100 a month, and it was all these kids in Lebanon that he was sponsoring. And Rose and all of his employees had worked there for years. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, this is an enormous amount of cash. This guy's laying it out. And somebody had paid for my seminary education, and I didn't know who it was. And I remember sitting in the quad as a bunch of seminary students were talking. I was, yeah, I've been covered. Mine's been paid. And there was like six of us, and we didn't know who did it. 
I was in his office picking up something for youth ministry because he went to our church, and I looked down on Rose's desk, and there was the, the bill to the Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary for all seven of us. And he would wear an old shirt and blue jeans and drive a beat-up truck and ride his bicycle through the lumber yard, farmer's lumber. He'd pick up old nails. He'd straighten them out, put them back in. He lived in a simple house in Huntington that he lived in his whole life. And he said, Rob, I live more simply that others might simply live. And any missionary that would come in, he would give them a free loan to build a spec house. They'd build the house, sell it. They'd pay him back the lumber. And then the money that they made on the sale of the house, they would continue in there. He did this over and over and over and over and over again. And the man just lived in such a way that he could give radically. And he learned that as a principal, as a child. And people would say, well, I never heard Harold Mansell you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He never said the words, Jesus Christ, will you come in and be my Lord and Savior and save my... He wouldn't... That would, his life was a testimony. I can't hear what you're saying because what you're doing speaks so loudly. So, 832, any other questions or comments before we close the night? Yeah. How do you pursue excellence when mediocrity has become a little G-God? The question is, how do you pursue excellence when mediocrity has become a little G-God? And, and I, I think that the reason why God gives children parents is that we can set that standard. Um, and you can, you can parent from a sinful past because forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold. So as, as fathers, we're, we're thermostats, not thermometers. We don't read the temperature of the room. We set it. And I, I think you, you, you push your kids to do the hard things. Um, my, my kids inevitably, and myself included, you're going to take the path of least resistance. And a coach pushes people to do things they don't want to do so they can become the kind of people they've always wanted to be. That was Tom Landry who said it. It's the same thing with parents. They don't like it when you push them, but they're entrusted to you. You're a steward. You're going to give an accounting of their life to the Lord. And you do it in such a way as to motivate them and encourage them, and you don't exasperate them, but you push them. And you push yourself. You know, you you can't take kids where you're not willing to go yourself. If you're going to say that we worship the Lord and things are caught, not taught, you can raise your hands and carry your big Bible, but they know what you're like at home. And if the message doesn't match the man and the man doesn't match the message, the kids just go, nah, I'm checking out. I, I see the hypocrisy in it. But when they're watching like Zabel did 70 years earlier, dad doing that and watching, and you get to, they get to see the application of faith in your life. Some of the greatest things Michelle and I have ever done was take these ventures of faith and just shake the family up. And we grew so close and tight and the kids had, you know, cause I, I was dreading the fallout of the social pathology of pastor's kids. Every one of them would be shipwreck. I didn't want that. I didn't want that. So I wanted our faith to be such that the kids were tangible. They could see God in the equation. And so far it's worked. Teddy bear. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all get into trouble in ministry. We see one person want something more than another. But I'm going to put a wall in the wall. I'm going to put pictures up. The guy said, I support every one of them. This is my support of love and put that wall in the picture. Amen. I'll close with this last thought. I know we're late, but this is kind of a cool one in regards to the, our Mormon brothers and sisters. And I say, of faith, qualified. Don't put that in the newspaper like I'm supporting a tax increase in the city. Um, yeah. So, got a call from a, a ranking member of the LDS and asked if, if they could borrow some money. And I said, we don't lend it, we give it. And come on by and I got the money for you. Sobbing, grateful, blessed. Tested us again and asked for another help. We did it again, didn't we, Tony? Yeah. I struggled over that one. Because now, is it enabling or is it, you know. But the more I thought about it, I brought it up with other leaders of the LDS. I go, you've got a leader in your LDS 
that came to us asking for a loan. Why didn't he come to you? Because you would have judged him. You would have judged him. And he would have never have obtained any level of leadership from that point forward. What did he get from us? Grace and forgiveness. And why did he approach me? Because he knows me to be the biggest loser on the planet. No, seriously, he's, he's seen my life. He knows, he, he, he knows that there's a transparency and I'm candid about those things and I'm approachable and he can relate. So this is a world that is propped up by law, but grace, I would love it if the two could come together where we observe the law out of gratitude instead of obligation and they understood justification just as if I'd never sinned where they understood grace. They get sanctification set apart. They don't get justification. And and that one story has served to minister to the leadership. Like they, they audibly groan when I tell them that story. You know why they didn't come to you? You have no grace. You have, you have sanctification down. You don't have justification. We have justification down. We struggle with sanctification. Sanctification is setting apart doing God's law. Justification is just as I've never sinned, right? Forgiven. The two need to come together. We don't abandon the law. We establish it for his glory. I'm finished. We'll go on all night. God bless you guys.